that. Uh, before we get started, I, ca camera, this is, this is your moment. I want you to find the super wide shot of the room real quick, okay? All right. Those of you who are with us online, good to see you. Glad you're with us. I want you to look real quick. Now, I, I propose, theologically, God loves everybody equally without merit, right? It, we don't earn God's love. God doesn't show favoritism. And yet, the people who made it through the downpour this morning <laughs> and who are sitting in this space right now, I'm just saying, if Jesus' points are real, they've got them. They've got them. Um, just kidding. I know that we've got a lot of folks with us online. I hope that wherever you are, you are dry and you are enjoying your morning and your sweatpants and your coffee and all the things I wish I had right now. Instead of uh, soaked shoes, I literally was having like bubbles come out of my shoes uh, this morning. Uh, Judy and I were having too much fun running through the parking lot with the umbrellas. Um, so it is a bit of a soggy Sunday. Uh, I'm thinking this morning about the letter of James. We're continuing in this series called Little Letters, and James is one of those texts that uh, is kind of provocative in church history, Christian history, because depending on who you ask, um, it's either a letter of great importance or one that like should maybe not even be in the Bible. There are great leaders throughout Christian history, like Martin Luther, you know, that guy that started the whole Reformation thing 500 years ago. Uh, who really think and thought very little of James uh, during most of his life and ministry. Um, and then there's also, you know, church fathers from way back in the day, like Origen, uh, who loved the letter of James and thought that James had more to say than Paul uh, theologically. Of course, Origen's considered a heretic by like half of Christendom, but whatever, that's not that important. Um, the, the point is that James is an interesting text. Interesting in a way because it is, um, it is proven difficult to capture uh, over the last 2,000 years. Um, let's break that down a little bit. First, who wrote James? Who is James? Traditionally, it's ascribed to the brother of Jesus. Imagine having Jesus as your brother, right? Um, that's not going to give you a weird complex at all. Um, and, and whether or not it was written by literally James, the brother of Jesus, most scholars agree that's the person that it's meant to have been written by, right? Either, whether uh, truly by his hand or under a pseudonym. Um, James, that James, became a great leader in Jerusalem in the Jesus movement, specifically in that center of Judaism. So don't forget that, that the early Jesus movement was not a separate religion in the way that we talk about Judaism and Christianity today, but it was rather a renewal sort of reformation movement within Judaism. It was meant to be the sort of messianic age, and, and that's what happens when you start a reformation or a renewal movement, and it ends up not becoming the norm in your religion. Well, guess what? Then you go and start a new one. That's how we get Christianity. Um, so James is charged with sort of leading this Jesus movement in the epicenter of Judaism in Jerusalem. And he's writing to no one in particular. In the beginning of the letter, he says, uh, to the 12 tribes uh, of Israel who were scattered all over the world, right? Um, he, he's writing to kind of this disconnected and yet connected group of people who, who share a faith and yet who don't know each other's lives. Um, he, he's writing in a, in a style that is interesting. Um, 
It's this sort of wisdom literature style. When you read the letter of James, if you're familiar with books like Proverbs from the Old Testament, it sounds very similar. There's a lot of sort of uh, imperatives, meaning uh, he's telling you this is how one should live. This is what leads to a good life. In the same way that wisdom literature uh, does, does so in, in the Old Testament. Um, and yet, unlike wisdom literature, for a long time people thought, you know, this James letter just feels like someone stitched together a bunch of vignettes. And it's kind of bouncing all over the place. And maybe it disagrees with Paul. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but over more recent years, scholars have, have realized through more careful examination, no, there's a through line here. Um, this, this author, James, is, is building the case for something. He's taking us on this journey through these little vignettes, yes, but there is a common theme and thread if we're willing to look a little bit closer than the surface. And so that's why I say oh, it, it, what's interesting is a couple hundred years ago, you asked most theological scholars who wrote James, they said, well, we don't really know. Um, but if you ask a lot of scholars today, they say, actually, we think there's a good chance that James really did write this because um, that's the way scholarly work works. You, you learn new things, then you change your mind, you know, or what we call today, you, you waffle. No, you, you, you change your mind, you learn, you grow. Um, the reason why James was disregarded so much for so long as a book of the Bible is because it does on the surface seem to uh, challenge a lot of the theology of Paul. Paul being the, the really big famous early church leader, the, the, the one who was out planting churches throughout the Mediterranean. Paul very famously has a theology um, that is, you know, just basic doctrinal truth for really any Christian you ask, which is we are saved by faith and not by works, right? You've heard some variation on this before. It, it's, it's not that we do good and then God loves us more and then God blesses us or things like that, but it's, it's that God loves us and has grace for us regardless. It's a sort of unconditional unmerited grace and love of God. That's the core of Paul's message. He was coming out a, of a much more zealous and violent understanding of his Jewish faith, and he swings all the way over to say, you know what, maybe living by all these rules is not the way um, to earn God's love. Maybe God's love is just granted to us as a gift. And that's true. And then you go and read James, and you see James say things like, faith without works is dead, right? Um, you'll notice today that James does, does not mince words when he has something to say. And, and at first you go, man, James, it sounds like you're telling us that, that doing good ultimately is what matters and that doing good is what leads us to salvation. And that's a really, really cursory and I would, I would say poor reading of James. Because I don't think James and Paul actually disagree. I think really what they are is in conversation with each other. When Paul says faith without works is dead, and then also says, also, grace does not mean you get to sin all the more, right? Just because God is gracious and loving doesn't mean you go, oh, good, now I can do all the stuff I want to do because God's not going to care anyways. Like, Paul says, no, okay, no, that's not what I mean when you take my little tweetable phrase and live your life by it, right? Um, and so James is saying, yeah, what he said, I want to drill down on that. And the reason I bring that up, just before we even get into James, is to say this. So much we, we will treat Scripture like it was all kind of written at once. The way that we talk about it in modern-day Christianity and the way that guys who stand in places like me will talk about it is like it's this thing that was handed down by a dove from God, written in stone all at once, this nice little collection of 66 books that never disagree and, and never have anything confrontational to say to one another. And that's not really what the Bible is. 
The Bible is this ongoing conversation about what it means to understand ourselves as belonging to God and who God is and who we are and our life in the midst of God's life. And all of it is constantly building upon itself and at times, yes, disagreeing and at times saying, wait, I want to drill down deeper over here and actually I'm not so sure about that. And that's really what James is. James is building on the conversation that Paul is starting and is saying, yeah, I want to talk about that. So, if the Bible is big enough for diverse theologies, I want to say so are we. It's one of the reasons why, as the pastor of Arapaho, at the end of the day, it's not my job to police what you believe, right? It's not my job to walk into every Sunday school class and say, now, wait a second, this conversation's getting out of hand. I am the doctrine police. You know, like, that's it's not really my job, um, because I believe that part of the beauty of Christianity, part of the gift we have in Scripture itself is the way that it invites conversation, the way that it builds upon uh, diversity of thought. And yeah, occasionally you'll get dubbed a heretic, but maybe another sect of Christianity calls you a saint, like Origen. So with all of that in mind, let's get into James. <laughs> James is a text that as you read through it, what I want to talk about today specifically, we could do a whole month on James, but today what I specifically want to talk about is the way that James, as wisdom literature, is distinct and different from wisdom literature present in his day and time. So when I say wisdom literature, let's define what that means. When you walk into Barnes & Noble and you're looking for a book that will tell you how to live a good life, what do we call that section, right? Self-help, right? Essentially, wisdom literature is a really theological version of self-help, right? It's if you do this stuff, this is the way that you should live your life, and if you do that, then things are going to work out well for you. Unless you read Ecclesiastes, he's super depressed, everything is terrible, we're all going to die, the end, right? Um, <laughs> But everything but Ecclesiastes. And, and, and so, you know, James writing wisdom literature, there's wisdom literature outside of religion. There's wisdom literature in different philosophies. And there is tons of wisdom literature in this Roman Empire day that James is writing in. And a lot of it was very, very similar. And they would build on very similar themes. And when you compare James to those, there's some really interesting differences. And that's where I think James gets interesting for us today. He has a, a very present-minded, action-oriented theology that is differentiated from the prevailing cultural wisdom of his day. The first difference I see, there's four, and the first difference is that James very much values morals over manners. Why do I say this? James in chapter 1, he says, my brothers and sisters, think of the various tests you encounter as, you, as occasions for joy. After all, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let this endurance complete its work so that you may be fully mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. But anyone who needs wisdom should ask God, whose very nature is to give to everyone without a second thought, without keeping score. Wisdom will certainly be given to those who ask. James is real big, in the, in the course of this letter, James is going to be developing this sort of theology that says, when we understand our lives rightly through the lens of God, when we see reality in the way that God sees it, that's going to change the way that we live within this reality. So in Hellenistic culture, and a lot of the wisdom literature of the day, the self-help would say, hey, here's the rules to being a good Roman, here's all, the, here's all the manners, all the etiquette to follow, and if you do all this stuff right, you might get to climb that next rung up Roman society ladder, and won't that be nice, right? 
Now, we don't have any literature like that today, do we? No. Um, this is exactly what James is speaking into. And, and James is saying, okay, now, now wait a second. You're telling me that the whole point of, of our existence is to try to mirror the norms of society as much as we possibly can, no matter how offensive those norms may be, so that we can maybe climb up another rung of this ladder of this social thing that we have said is morally hollow to begin with? That's the point of life? Really? And it makes me think about today with all the problems that we face as a culture and as a country, the one thing that seems to trip up a lot of people, and it's the word that I'm getting so tired of hearing, is civility. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but this, this thought that like of all the things that we are facing, the worst of it is the way that people talk to each other in the chambers of Congress, and I'm thinking, really? Or the way that we talk to each other, uh, even in our personal lives, and we're going to talk about conflict during the month of August, I think there's worthy discussion to be had there, but of everything we're facing, civility, and by civility we mean the manners that we have with one another, the niceties we express, that's the big moral crisis we're facing as a people. Because I think James would submit that there are other things that are more uncivil than the way that we talk to each other or the etiquette that we express. I think James would suggest that it is uncivil for us to talk about the strength of the economy right now when there are people who have to work multiple jobs just to afford the privilege of living paycheck to paycheck, and a flat tire could still bankrupt their family. That's uncivil, right? I, I think it's uncivil for people's health care to be commoditized to the point that they have to wonder if health is actually a part of their budget or not. That's uncivil. I really could not care less, James says, how people are talking to each other in the halls of Congress when you have people literally crying out in the streets saying, I can't afford to live, but you want me to make sure to say please and thank you. So what really counts as incivility? What really counts as a civilized society? I mean, James is saying this, speaking this from Jerusalem into a Roman empire that is the definition of civilization at the time. And he's saying what's uncivil is wanting to climb the ladder of a social order that we have all recognized is ultimately morally hollow. That's uncivil. What's faithful is to say, I'm going to live my life the way that God has asked me to, knowing that it's actually going to lead me down that ladder, most likely. It's going to lead me into trials and tests, is the language that James uses. And he says, that's actually a gift. Not that God is the one that makes life hard for us, but when we step into hardship because we are faithful, that's where God can do that work. Not so that we can fill our silos, but so that God can fill our spirits. He says, we're working towards not a bigger family and a bigger barn and a bigger house and a bigger this and a bigger that. We're working to become whole people. If we've said that a, hollow, a morally hollow society is, is what plagues us, then, then we need to start by working here and allowing God to fill this first. That's what the life of faith is about. So the reality is that morality matters, my friends, and moral action simply outweighs polite behavior. That's the shift that James is asking us to make. The second differentiation between other wisdom literature and James is James values community over the household community over the household. In chapter 2, he picks up, he says, my brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. He goes on to talk about the way that we interact socially and, and to not show favoritism to the wealthy and the, and the privileged. Um, 
In a lot of Hellenistic writings in those days, and we see this reflected in actually other letters of the Bible, like Titus and First and Second Timothy and First and Second Peter, um, almost all of wisdom literature at some point is going to address the household. The household is the thing that they drill down on, because to lead a proper household was really the, the highest view of, of, of morality uh, for that patriarchal society, and we see this reflected in Scripture as well. And it's interesting, for James being such a wisdom literature style letter, and, and to be so full of moral imperatives, that not once does James even worry about what's happening in households. Like, that's not on his radar at all. I wonder if it's because he's working out his family systems of being Jesus' brother. I don't know. I don't know. That's a fun family table to be at for dinner, right? Jesus, how was your day today? Well, I uh, calmed a storm and um, drove out some demons, and I brought a little girl back to life. Her family was pretty psyched about that. Um, oh, wow. James, how about you? I... Uh, I built a pretty sick table, Dad. It uh, looks pretty good. So that was my Tuesday. Um, yeah, James is not concerned about the household. He, uh, it's a notable omission. In fact, he always refers to everyone he's writing to in this letter as brothers and sisters. He only ever refers to God as parent. He never makes reference to any parents, any elders, any sort of social order. We'll talk about hierarchy in a moment. But it's fascinating to me that he's only really concerned about the broader community. He really couldn't care less about what's happening in the family home. I don't know if that's because he truly doesn't care about homes or if he sees that in a way our homes can be somewhat of an illusion. I think he's, he's trying to make this case that there is always this community around us that, that we are involved in more than we like to think we are. You know, we, we, we build these homes, these houses, or we live in, in apartments or spaces that we feel like are ours, and that's my space and my place, and what happens in here is just about me. And I think James is challenging us to say everything we do ends up rippling out beyond us. As a person raising a family right now with three kids, I think James would challenge me to say, you know, Scott, you're not raising three kids to turn into like three really awesome adults. You're raising three people who you need to see as future conscientious members of a community. Like that's what you're raising. It's not just about what happens in the Gilliland household. It's actually what happens out beyond it. That's what matters most. There's so much Christian literature these days about raising a Christian family. And I think James would challenge us to, to stop isolating ourselves and to think that, like, well, I can control what happens in here. No, you can't. Not really. The walls of your home are kind of an illusion. Everything, unless you're going to be Amish, unless you're going to go live in the boon, boonies somewhere, you know, up in the mountains and, and start making moonshine, I don't know. And if you make moonshine, don't shoot me an email. That was just an ad lib. Um, yeah. I think the point is that our homes can sometimes be an illusion, and James is challenging us to not see those walls as actually as thick as they are. That at the end of the day, we're, we're not just members of like a, a nuclear family. We are all part of a larger community, whether we see it or not. The reality is the walls of our house are not real. We are not just building homes. We are building a community. How we choose to live into that, the actions we take or we don't take, that can in many ways determine the substance of that community. But the reality is we are all a part of that together. Thirdly, uh, James differentiates by valuing egalitarian structure over hierarchy. 
So you'd think, you know, here's this great church leader in Jerusalem, which is like as institutional as it gets. Wouldn't he be the one to be like, now, here's the way things need to work. But James is remarkably egalitarian in his view. As I said before, everybody is brothers and sisters. Only God is given a role of, of, of importance over anybody else. He, he says that we are all sort of on this equal playing field. In fact, the way we get to that equality is interesting. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, listen. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? You do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in Scripture Love your neighbor as yourself. So building on this importance of community, James continues in this Jesus tradition of preaching what we would call in, in fancy seminary language the eschatological reversal. Or in other terms, it's the way the kingdom of God's arrival upends life as we understand it. Jesus summarizes it by saying, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And at first, that sounds really great. You're like, oh, yeah, kingdom of God, here we come. And yet, ironically, this is a vision for equality that is going to feel unequal. Because notice, if you are rich, being put into a kingdom of God scenario means that you are, in fact, going to be lowered and be made poor. And if you are poor, you are going to see this as truly the good news because you are finally going to feel that relief and that uplifting because you are no longer being, what does he say, dragged into court and having your name cursed by those who have the means to. So, so frequently we talk about, yes, kingdom of God, when the reality is a lot of us, when we understand true equality in our society, in this world that God loves so much, it's going to mean lowering. <laughs> it's good news for the poor. But good news for people like me might mean that I have fewer resources in the kingdom of God than I do today. I have a lower status than I do today. I have less privilege than I do today. That's actually good news, but it, it might hurt. It might not be fun. So much of ancient wisdom literature affirms this rigid status that exists in the Roman society, but doesn't really exist anymore today, right? Um, that was a joke. Um, Parents versus children, rich versus poor, all the different segments of how the social order is constructed, and so much of the wisdom literature of the day basically affirmed that, like, yeah, that's good. Like, that's the way it's supposed to be. If you're rich, it's because you're supposed to be rich. And if you're poor, quite frankly, it's because you're supposed to be poor. And, and, and so much of what James is trying to offer is, is a, a direct confrontation of that assumption. And that, like, this is the way it is, and this is the way it's supposed to be, so I guess get climbing that ladder. And he's like, what if we blow up the ladder? Has anybody thought about that? What if the ladder kind of stinks? What if I don't want to climb it? What if I just want to burn it down? How about that? In fact, he says, all of us have the ability to pray. All of us have the ability to heal. All of us have the ability to live out the fruits of the Spirit that he lists in his letter. What does it mean for us to see the poor as being richer in faith than the wealthy among us. I think it means that we have to actually do the work of looking for the reversal and asking for it to come and realizing that maybe there are parts of my faith that will be kept from me until I lower myself 
and realize that there is somebody in this world that has something to teach me about God, and I can't see them right now because of where I sit on the ladder. The reality is we are siblings. That's the reality that James invites us into. We have equal capacity to live in the Spirit. It doesn't mean we're all using it, but we all do have equal capacity. That's a radical notion in James's day. And so lastly, James is sort of building all of this to this sort of sermonic conclusion in chapter 5, where it's clear that he values communitarian ideals over individualism. This is where he's really getting clear about the practical implications of this. He says, if any of you are suffering, they should pray. If any of you are happy, they should sing. If any of you are sick, they should call for the elders of the church, and the elders should pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And just in case you think this is something only they do themselves, confess your sins to each other, he says, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. In fact, just to put a real, real thick underscore on this, when he talks about communitarian versus individualistic ideas earlier in chapter 5, just before he says this, he's going in really hard on wealthy landowners. He says, pay attention, you wealthy people. Weep and moan over the miseries coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Moths have destroyed your clothes. He doesn't mince words, I said. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you. It will eat your flesh like fire. Consider the treasure you have hoarded in the last days. Listen, Hear the cries of the wages of your field hands. These are the wages you stole from those who harvested your fields. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the heavenly forces. Uh-oh. I think the Bible just went pro-union. Um, <laughs> Got to get this woke out of the Bible. Um, So he's not just talking about labor rights. He is talking about labor rights. You can't miss that. But he's not just talking about labor rights. I think what he's talking about is this lie that we believe and the way that we perceive reality that I am me and you are you. And, and there is like somehow this disconnection between the two of us. I, I think about the way that he writes this letter in the beginning to the 12 tribes wherever you are, right? There's this disconnection and yet he's going to call them back to connection. Even though they don't know what's happening in one another's lives, he's going to call them back to realize there's this inherent connectedness. Here at AUMC, we use the phrase, we belong to each other, right, to articulate that. There's this inherent connectedness between us upon this earth that God as creator didn't just create individual people, but created a world, a living, breathing ecosystem thing that, yeah, we get to be a part of. And the lie that we believe is that the actions I take primarily affect me or the people that I think they affect. But the reality that James is inviting us into is to see that there is the potential for action. And in fact, the reality of action that impacts people that you'll never see, whether you think about it or not. That your actions matter, in fact, not because you see it, but because somebody else feels it. That when you're the wealthy landowner and you think, isn't this great, this harvest came in, guy made record profit, he's saying, yeah, but your laborers are crying out because they can't afford the bread that they just harvested for you. Or maybe it's the fact that there are people sitting in the pews that are hurting and crying out for prayer or for healing. And yeah, they could do that on their own, but James is saying, what if you did that together? What if you realized you had the capacity to heal and to bring light and to bring life into this world in the same way that God your creator does? 
It's a reality shift to take seriously the actions in my life, not because it matters to me, but because it matters to somebody else and ultimately because it matters to God. The same God who created this world in love, the same God who walks and journeys with each and every one of us through trial and tribulation and celebration, the same God who wants to be at work and alive in each and every one of us. Your actions matter. Your actions matter. And don't let that be a crushing weight. Allow that to be an inspirational lift to trust that when you live by faith, when you do the things that you know God has called you to do, especially when these are things that are not reinforced by a morally hollow culture that you may exist within, when you live by faith and you act in that way, it matters to somebody. Whether you see it or not, it's a blessing, it's a light, it is life. We are saved by, by faith. Yes, Brother Paul, that is true. But faith is made real in our actions day to day. So could James shift our reality, help us to see this world and our lives in the way that God sees them, full of grace and also full of truth, so that we might live in a way that matters. May it ever be so. Amen.